This class is called I Will Be Your God, an exploration of God's covenants. This is the 12th week of studying covenant theology, God's, uh, the divine covenants of scripture. I am not your usual teacher. This is not my class. I am filling in for Stephen Baker, who is up in Huntington, I think that's up, speaking at Colin and Kara Hobbs's church, teaching their Sunday school teachers how to teach or encouraging them in their teaching, something like that. He actually didn't know what he was going to do as he was driving up there, um, which speaks to the week that Stephen has had with the Presbytery meeting. Um, Stephen was very apologetic to me as he showed up at my house Friday night and handed me this stack of notes. And I thought, man, this is Stephen on a bad week? That's amazing. I wish I had one of Stephen's bad weeks occasionally. He's got his act together. But then I looked at the notes and I realized, I got a fuller picture of why he was apologetic. It's because while the notes are most excellent, the topic is very difficult. He has left me with one of the most difficult topics in this class, but also what Jonathan Edwards referred to as one of the hardest problems in theology. So, have mercy on me today. Is yeah, smart of Stephen to leave on this week. So, we've been looking at what a covenant is, and we have said a divine covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A, di- a bond in blood, so a life and death commitment and relationship that is administered sovereignly by the Lord. And so this week we're looking at the Mosaic Covenant, God's covenant with Israel that was mediated through Moses. Now, why is this the hardest problem in theology? It in itself is not. But its place, in relation, its role in the unfolding purpose of God and as it relates to the new covenant in Christ is very difficult to understand. And theologians... Uh, who worked together, even men who worked together to write the Westminster Confession of Faith had lots of very particular disagreements with one another about what this means, what the Ten Commandments are, how they fit in with God's unfolding purposes. There's a lot to talk about. A lot of ink has been spilled about it. We're just going to scratch the surface today. So, the details of God's covenant with Israel through Moses unfold over several chapters of the book of Exodus, later chapters of Exodus, starting with really about 19 and going through the 30s, and then there's a a re-giving of the law in 34, I think, and then moving on into the story of Joseph later. No, that's in Genesis the, the, wil- the wilderness wandering after that and the, the building of the tabernacle. So, we don't have time. To, I wish we could just read through it, but that would take all the time that we had. So we're just going to have to give a cursory overview of those chapters. So the background to Exodus 19 and following is that God had kept his promise to Abraham by giving him a son, Isaac, and by then giving sons to Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob, whom God called Israel. And Jacob had sons, whom became the heads of tribes of Israel. And God caused the sons of Israel to go from the land of Canaan to Egypt, where they were preserved from a severe famine. That's how 
Those are the circumstances that God brought his people to Egypt. And the sons of Israel lived in Egypt for 400 years and became a great nation there. We're going to talk in a few minutes about how the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants are, are related organically. They're not just isolated things that God decided to do arbitrarily, but he's unfolding and working a plan, and they are related organically. One of the really obvious ways that they're related is that they pertain to one family. So Abraham had sons, and God ended up making a covenant again with his sons, and so on. So eventually, while they're in Egypt, there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt who oppressed and enslaved the sons of Israel. And when they cried out to God for help, he heard them by sending Moses to lead them out of bondage. And we know the story of Exodus um, and the miracles that God performed for his people in Egypt to, to lead them out with a strong arm for his own glory and, the, and their good. And then after he led the people through the Red Sea and rescued them from their enemies, he brought them to Mount Sinai and told Moses that he would make a covenant with them. And that brings us, I think, here to Exodus 19. It says, Moses went up to God up on the mountain, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, of all the, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So then, in the next chapter, in Exodus 20, God gives the law to Moses up on the mountain, the Ten Commandments. He writes those, that law himself with his own finger, And these become known a few chapters later as the words of the covenant. That's what they're called in Exodus 34, the words of the covenant. So then in chapter 24, a covenant ceremony takes place. I'm I'm talking about, we're just trying to establish that this is in fact a covenant that's happening here. There's a covenant ceremony that takes place in chapter 4. And it is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Let's see that. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That was the fir- as I was reading over these notes last night, I, that's the first, that just jumped out at me, just... I think that's interesting. Moses took time to write down what God had said to me that very, at that moment. It's possible that some of the words we read now in the book of Exodus, which Moses wrote, he wrote that night. Isn't that exciting to think about? Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
Okay, so the Mosaic Covenant is very complicated. There's a lot to it. It takes up a lot of words in Scripture, and it is notoriously difficult to process theologically as New Covenant era Christians. We're going to have to be content, as I said, with a big picture view of what's going on here. There are a couple of things that we have to see in order to understand the Mosaic Covenant and its place in the whole Bible. Number one, the Mosaic Covenant is directly related to the Abrahamic Covenant. Since the historical covenants are all, as we've said, administrations or expressions of the covenant of grace, that is, God's unfolding purpose in the revelation of Jesus Christ in history, which was something that he intended from eternity past and is now working out by paving the way or making the way for his son to appear at the fullness of time. I don't know how to complete that sentence. Forgive me. But that is what God is doing. He is unfolding his plan. And at each of the, each of the moments or the episodes, the big uh, availing a bit more of that plan is, is a, a covenant, the establishment of a new covenant. And those covenants are not, they are interrelated. They are connected organically. They're not hard breaks where God stops doing one thing and starts doing another thing or a new thing, something completely different. The historical covenants in Scripture flow into one another over time and in an organic, progressive way. And so when God came to Abraham, he built on his previous promises to Noah. It's effectively, God says this, I will never again wipe out mankind with a flood. Mankind will spread and develop and fill the earth. But out of the mass of mankind, I will choose one man from whom I will make a nation. And out of that nation, I will bring forth a seed. And in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So as I was thinking about this earlier this morning, I wrote these words. A family, a nation, the world. That's, that's a really rough framework for what God is doing in preparing the way for his son and then fulfilling the ministry of his son in this earth. A family, Abraham, a nation, Israel, the world. World domination is the goal. The, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's what the prophets foretold. And that is what is unfolding in history. That is the whole story of Scripture from Adam all the way to Christ. All of Scripture is the Lord unfolding this single purpose to bring about the salvation of his covenant people through Jesus. And so all the Scripture is organically tied together that way. We've already seen a hint of this organic relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant back in Genesis 15. When God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15, when he was enacting the covenant ceremony, remember walking between the animals that had been cut, and he was he was himself um, uh, bringing he was himself walking through the animals, not not the lesser party, Abraham, but him, the sovereign Lord, 
was walking between the animals and saying, let it be done to me if I break this covenant that I've made with you. Let me be torn apart like these animals. There he foretold the events leading up to the Mosaic Covenant. That's the point. This is one way that we know they're organically related because right when God's doing that, he tells Abraham what's going to happen with the people. He says this in Genesis 15. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abraham, or Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So as he's making his covenant with Abraham, he is, he is showing and anticipating the, what the, the day what we are studying here in Exodus 19 and his delivery of his people from, from Egypt. There are no surprises with God. He is not making things up as he goes along. He's not responding to one crisis after another in the best way he knows how to do. Abraham will have many sons, and those sons will become a nation, and that nation will grow into a great nation in the incubator of Egypt, and the Lord will lead that nation out of Egypt and plant them again in the land of Canaan, the land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. That is God's plan. And that plan will progressively unfold through his dealings with the nation of Israel and with David their king, which is what we'll look at next week, and ultimately culminate with the coming of the Lord himself in the person of Jesus to rule and reign and judge and save. And so we see that God makes his covenant with Israel through Moses explicitly in the context of his covenant with Abraham. And, Stephen says, as a matter of fact, God makes this covenant with Israel because of his covenant with Abraham. God heard the groaning of people, uh, the people of Israel in Egypt because of his covenant with Abraham. Look at this. It says in Exodus 2, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. After the exodus from Egypt, when the people of Israel made the golden calf in worship, God relented from destroying them because of his covenant with Abraham. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So here in Exodus, a number of times, the promises to Abraham are, are brought to mind, even in appeals to God, Remember what you have promised. 
And here we, and God responds by remembering what he promised and furthering that promise. When the Lord was about to bring the Israelites into the land of Canaan, he did it because of his covenant with Abraham. Deuteronomy 1.8. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. And we, Stephen says, we also see that in the Mosaic Covenant, God repeats the same promises he made to Abraham. God promised to Abraham that God would be with him, that he would have many descendants, and that he would dwell in the land that God had promised to give them. And we see that same thing being, um, being accomplished here, point by point. In Exodus 23, 20 to 33. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way, so the presence of God, and to bring you into the place which I have prepared, a land. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. Again, the presence of God. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Am I still on your... Is it still there? Okay. Tell me when I need to turn, okay? Because I'm not sure it lines up. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Okay, thank you. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. So this is a connection to the promise of seed. I will preserve your children. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you, I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful seed and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you a land." You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So that's the first thing to see. We've been trying just to establish in a number of ways that the Mosaic Covenant is not God introducing something different or new or fundamentally new, but it is a consistent way of dealing with his people that is unfolding and progressive. And it is organically connected to all that he had previously done with Abraham. 
point number two. The Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. This is the troublesome thing. And I talked about the hardest problem in theology is to make this case and to understand the ins and outs of it. There's a lot of ink has been spilled over what is the Mosaic Covenant in relationship to the unfolding plan of God in Christ. All of the covenants, all of the historical covenants, are administrations of the covenant of grace. That's what, our, the, what's, what the Westminster Confession teaches. That is what I and Stephen believe. That is what we're trying to teach to you. All of the historical covenants are administrations of a covenant of grace that God has, is doing something to redeem fallen man in Christ Jesus, and this unfolds in the form of various covenants leading up to the new covenant in Christ. The historical covenants are after Adam and Adam's fall, which is a, what we call the covenant of works or covenant with creation. It has different possible titles. But after that was no more, and it was not possible for God to make anything other than a completely unilateral and gracious covenant for man's redemption, that he himself took on himself the terms. All of those different stages of that unfolding plan are the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where we are today, the Davidic covenant, and finally the new covenant. All of these historical covenants are part of God's unfolding plan that, stated, that started in eternity past to save and sanctify a people for his own possession. We see the gracious character of God's covenant with Israel through Moses in places like this. Deuteronomy 7, 7-8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, because of that, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is, it, it, it talks of his love. And so the, the context of him giving the law and the ceremonies, the, the, the restrictions, and all of the trappings of the covenant of Moses is his love and his faithfulness to be a God to his people and to care for them. That's the context. God's grace is also clear in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. God gave the law in relationship to his deliverance of his people and the fulfillment and remembering of his promises to Abraham. God gave the law after he had redeemed his people from Israel. Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, remember, here's, here's the motivation for doing my commands. And the reason and the context that I'm now going to make any demands of you, and I'm going to teach you my law, is because I, have re- I am the one who has redeemed you. This is how obedience works in our life. We don't obey to earn God's favor. God redeems us, and then he sets his law before us and says, here's the way, walk in it. And that's what he does with his people. So the Mosaic Covenant was an expression 
or an administration of this unfolding covenant of grace, just like all the other historical covenants. But this is hard to understand for us because the primary feature of the Mosaic covenant is what? Law! I mean, it is inescapable. And there are thunderings and lightnings and the sounds of trumpets, things that people could not even bear. They said to Moses, don't let that happen again. We don't want to hear God speak to us. You go up there and talk to him and come back and tell us what he says. It is unbearable to us. And that is the character of this covenant. And that's why it causes trouble for us. One of the reasons is its own heavy character and legal character. The law is called the word of the covenant. (laughs) There are systems of theology. Well, let me say this. We have been trained, many of us have been trained to think that law and grace are diametrically opposed to one another. You can, ha- you can have one or the other, but you can't have both of them together. And there are systems of theology that teach that people who lived under the Mosaic Covenant were made righteous by their works. And even if we haven't been taught one of those systems, which I believe is a completely unbiblical system of theology, even if we haven't been taught that, I think a lot of us, in the absence of good teaching about it, are left to assume that there's some other way that God's people in the past or in the Old Testament related to him, worshipped him, are saved from their sins or forgiven. They stand in relationship to God in some other way than you or I do. That way might be eating the right food or wearing the right fabric or not becoming unclean, keeping the Sabbath, performing the sacrifices, being circumcised. Isn't it true that people who lived back then under the Mosaic Covenant were justified by their obedience to all those laws? I think that's a trick question. (laughs) It appears to be because the next thing is underlined and it says the answer to that is no. (laughs) But many of those things are in fact commanded. All of those things are in fact commanded. And there are intense uh, judicial penalties attended with some of the breaking of those commands. And so we, in fairness to the Mosaic law, and to what God is teaching in this part of his word, we have to recognize and acknowledge the intense legal nature of his dealings with his people at that time. But that does not mean that it is fundamentally ungracious or that the people are relating to God in a way that's different than you and I. In, in terms of substance and fundamentals. There has never been a fallen sinner who has come to God and been reconciled to God any other way than Abraham, our father of the, in faith, was reconciled to God. 
his children here, there's not suddenly some new way that God is trying or calling them to himself. And the terms of that way are not suddenly different than they were for Abraham, who was, who, who was tested and, and expressed his belief and his faith and was made righteous on the basis of that faith, and then commanded, given a law of circumcision. The answer is no, because of partly why it says what it says here in Hebrews, that the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, let's just recognize what that says. The law, the Mosaic law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If you read that, my mind immediately goes to the question, well, why then did, were they commanded in the first place? If it's impossible, if they're not really any help in the end to these people, and this is not the answer, why did God command them? And it's not just, it, you have to, it even says that these sacrifices stand in themselves as a reminder of sin, year by year. As they bring the sacrifice, they're reminded of their sin. So why did God command these things? Anybody want to take a stab at an answer? Denver. Why? <laughs> yeah. Michael? Yes. It, it teach. Okay. It, it points ahead and gives a structure for an understanding of Christ's death. Is that what you said? Here's a follow-up question to that. Okay, I can accept that for us. That's clearly, hap that's clearly being taught to New Testament era believers who are struggling to understand and accept the new covenant and its terms, what Jesus has done, and to live by faith in Jesus. So for us, we can all accept all the ways that the sacrifices typify, point to, prepare the way for Jesus right? At least for us, it speaks that way. It, do they speak, did they speak to the people in the Old Testament in that way? Or are they just this futile system that they have to do, but it's not going to produce the fruit of faith in Jesus that washes them of their sins? It's sort of both and. Because we have to accept that it's, they stand as a reminder of sin year by year. So that they, let's step back and just say, the law itself, as what Paul teaches us in Romans, the law came in so that sin would increase. The law came in so that sin would increase. And it, it would be, if I was going, you know, it would be very easy for me to convince you all, if it weren't for those words in Hebrews, to make us all feel the, the relief of the tension 
of the nature of the Mosaic law to say, well, yes, there's the Ten Commandments, law, but then there's the sacrifices that provide the way for the sinners who are convicted of their sin by the law to be made right with God. And they do. But in themselves, they stand as part of a, a law reminder of sin as they encounter them each year. This is, this is, there's complex ideas um, inherent in this covenant. It has a legal character which was ultimately insufficient. It was never intended to be ultimate. But it served the people perfectly well according to God's plan and intention for them and was enough for them, for those who were of the elect and of the, uh, who were called to faith and, and came to God on the basis of faith to see beyond them to Christ and his atonement. So they, let's just talk for a minute about some of the ways that the sacrifices point to Jesus. Somebody tell me, how do they, how do they point to Jesus? Has to be suffering. Okay. The animal suffers on behalf of the sinner. So vicarious sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice for sins. And the animals represent the, the, uh, the imputing of the sin of, a, of, of, uh, of the person and t- taking the penalty for that sin. They would lay their hands on the head of the animals while the throat was cut. And it would symbolize the imputing of their sin onto the animal. Gruesome, but God ordained that. And it paints a picture of what he would do through his son for us. Other aspects, yes? Yes, these animals had to be without blemish and spotless. How does that point to... Yeah, so Christ is, is righteous, perfectly righteous and spotless. And so God was teaching them that aspect of the Savior. Anything else? Aaron. What does that mean? What does that teach us? Set apart, sanctified, and clean. Caleb, is that a hand? Yes. So the, explain that. Finish that thought. How is that? Yeah. Michael? And that, is, I think, points to, again, the gracious, ultimately the gracious character even in these legal requirements, God has an eye to mercy and accommodation of the poor. Yes, Joel. Yes. It helps us to realize, what did you say again? The weight of our sin? 
Yes. Yes. So I think that's a, another way of saying that they're costly. They cost, they, they're, they're costly that points to the value and the worth of the ultimate sacrifice and that the, the, these had a higher market value being the best animals and the people are having to, to pay that price which speaks ultimately to the price that the father would pay in the giving of his son. In a little way, you know, just in a little way. And that's, what the, that's true across the board. There's a thousand little ways that God has written his, the, his plans with his son into this sacrificial system. But at their very best, they're very dark and hard to see through. Impossible to see through? Anybody want to defend the idea that it's not impossible to see through these veil the veil of this typology which we can see because we've been taught it by new testament authors and the author of hebrews in particular but anybody want to defend the idea that the people themselves could see and did see through these this the window of these sacrifices ben had a thing had his hand up first Hey, Jonathan, can we get this on, please? Thank you. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll defend it and then I'll not defend it. Okay. Because I think we should do both. But it, it's clear in the Old Testament there are people with humility and faith who God knows as his own. And it's not just prophets, right? It's not just people with a special anointing who get a vision of, oh, this means the Messiah. Um, it's just people who trust the Lord. You get that, like in the time of Elijah, when Elijah says, I'm the only man left in Israel, God, who believes in you, who trusts you, who's righteous before you, after he fights the prophets of Baal. God says to him, no, actually you're not. I've hidden several hundred people who fear me in a cave. You don't know anything about that. And so <laughs> God, God always has kind of a, a remnant throughout the Old Testament. And you have David who sees and knows the Lord. You have other people who love the Lord and who trust him, but it's the attitude of humility and trust that actually matters more to God, which is what, how David talks about the sacrifices. What will please God more than the blood of bulls? A humble and contrite heart over sin. But the other thing that I wanted to bring up is that in Deuteronomy, it, maybe you were going to say this, it keeps saying, that the one who does these things will live by them. And that's what Paul repeats in the New Testament when he's explaining the way that the law became a snare to people because of sin. You hear those words and you think, I can be good enough for God. Here's the path. I can do it. And as soon as you have that attitude, you're proud. You're twisting the law into something you can actually keep. You're not keeping it on a heart level because how could you? Uh, and so without, does that make sense? What I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't know if people are following. I don't know how clear that is. But it, without the attitude of trust that says, I have a promise from God like Abraham. And I, I have faith that you'll fulfill your promise. 
you can't keep the law on a heart level, and you, you won't know God. And that's why in the New Testament, Paul keeps doing that with the law. Like, this was a burden too heavy for us to bear. Why? Because we got caught in a snare. We thought we actually could do it. Just want me to speak to that for a second. The New Testament is hard on the law. We all understand this? It disparages the law. It puts it in hard opposition to the way of Christ, the way of faith in Christ. It's like you can, sure, knock yourself out. You can have the law, but you can't have Christ. Two roads. And that makes us think that it helps reinforce the idea, the vague idea, that maybe there's something else going on in the Old Testament. Harder than I can, too hard for me to understand, but some other system or way that has no relation to me. And I better watch out from it and keep my distance from it because it's put in opposition to the goodies of the New Testament in Christ. Y'all, y'all with me? Well, we have, this will help you understand some of why it's done, why the writers of the New Testament speak so harshly of the law. The people misused and misunderstood God's law. That's their audience. It's the people who have for generations abused the law. Paul speaks in Timothy of a proper use of the law, a lawful use of it. He says the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He's speaking to people who do not understand or know how to use the law lawfully and have looked to it as a system of justification before God. When really what it is, is a reminder of sin. It's a restatement of the covenant of works. Codified, written on stone, this is your obligation. Sure, do that and live. And what it's intended for God's people is to, to see it and feel the weight of it and come to, the, just like you and me, to come to the end of ourselves and say, There's, I can't, I can't. But even for them, God had provided a way of reconciliation when they sinned. And that way was through sacrifices. But what the author of Hebrews is speaking to people who are hanging on to those sacrifices now that Jesus has come and he's, he's saying, that, they never could do that, anything for you. He's not saying, though, that that was not God's way of teaching them to look in faith to God who could deliver them from their sins. That was God's way of dealing with those people at that time. But now that Jesus has come, that's been done away. And he's speaking to an audience of people who are having a very difficult time coming to grips with that reality. This is their history. This is their heritage. But God now has, has done away with all the typology that was all of the scaffolding that was built up around the, the great project of his son, and now that this, the, the project is done and ready for unveiling, the scaffolding comes down. But it's, there's been a lot, of, lot invested in the scaffolding culturally. And so the writers of the New Testament are having to work their rear ends off to get people to accept this and understand it and, see, and make this next step from a family to a nation to the world. It's not a fundamentally different system, but there are differences as we move from a nation to the world. 
And when Christ has come and the, the statue is ready for its unveiling, the work of Christ and his, his ministry is accomplished, that's when we take that step to the Gentiles, to the world, a step that is still being taken as we take the message of reconciliation in Christ to our neighbors. Y'all following this? Okay. Okay, well, we have to be done. So maybe clean, Stephen can clean up the mess next week. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for your word. And all that it teaches, and all that it teaches about your son, help us to understand it, make it clear to us, and help us to profit from it, not just intellectually, but in our hearts before you. Instruct us in godliness as we continue to seek you today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.